Hello and welcome to this Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who Is Dying, produced by the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and nationally funded by Quality of Care Collaborative Australia. My name is Lena Keneva and I'm a journalist and the facilitator of this five-part series. This series will focus on the experience of parents whose children have died or are likely to have a short life. The parents we're about to hear from have been supported by palliative care teams to face multiple challenges in caring for their own children. They bravely share their experiences to inform and prepare other families who may need to face similar challenges. In this episode, we look at what many parents call understanding the nitty-gritty, approaching the end of a child's life. We're joined today by three mothers to hear their stories. Welcome to you all. Priyanka and husband William's daughter, Lily, was born with an incurable brain condition known as Miller-Dika syndrome. Her short life ended 10 months later. Laura and her husband Simon's daughter Matilda died at the age of seven from a neurodegenerative condition called Batten disease. They also have another daughter, Maggie. Simone and husband Wayne's daughter, Eliza, was 17 when she died from the complications of a severe and debilitating skin condition known as EB. You have a younger daughter who is now 16, and I'm sure you'll explain what EB is to us later. Priyanka, can I start with you? Can you tell us a little bit about the journey with Lily? Thanks, Lena. It's lovely to be here to share Lily's story today. Um, Lily was my first baby, and I had a very normal pregnancy with her up until 37 weeks. Um, Around 37 weeks, I had a routine ultrasound that my doctor just did to make sure the baby was the right size. And in that ultrasound, the doctors picked up an anomaly in her brain. They couldn't see the brain development that they would have expected a baby at that far along in gestation to have. So what went from a happy day going off to see the baby on the ultrasound for the last time became the day that our world fell apart. And I often think of that person, that couple that went happily to the hospital as a completely different couple to the people that we are today. Um, After that ultrasound, I went on to do a fetal MRI and In that, uh, the results of that showed us that the baby's brain hadn't developed properly. We had done all the normal tests. So we often get people asking, oh, did you do that Down syndrome blood test or did you do this test? But yes, we ticked all the boxes that we thought were necessary at that time and everything that was available to us. And it was just one of those things that doesn't get picked up. Um, So we were told that our baby would die that we didn't, they couldn't give us a time frame. So sometimes we were told that maybe the baby wouldn't survive birth or if the baby did survive birth, she wouldn't live for very long. And then other explanations were children with this kind of condition can live for up to 10 years, but if she does, she'll never walk, she'll never talk, she'll have severe 
intellectual disabilities. She might not show any emotion. Um, so it was completely devastating. I mean, I think everybody plans for their baby when they're they're going to be parents for the first time. You you plan the nursery, you paint the nursery, you think your child's going to be a superstar, some sort of famous ballerina or, or a brain surgeon or something. Um, you never plan for your baby to be the one that won't be able to hold her own head up. Um, and so we waited. At that stage, we went into complete shock and um, the full range of emotions that you go through are hard to put into words. And I vividly remember leaving the the diagnosis room and getting into the car and just vomiting all over myself. It was the most horrendous shock and I think it's, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy to have to go through and experience that. Um, and we then decided to wait um, for the baby to be born naturally. So in a, in a way that helped to shape our approach to Lily's life, we knew that she wouldn't necessarily live a long life and we wanted it to be as good as it possibly could be. So for us that meant making sure that she could um, have sort of as least a medicalised life as possible whilst being as healthy and safe and comfortable as she could be. So we decided, um, and that kind of informed why we waited for her to come naturally. We thought we could have an induction or we could have a caesarean, but actually the questions that we started to ask ourselves even then was how will that impact her life? Is it going to change anything? Is it going to improve anything? And it wasn't going to change her diagnosis. So... We waited and um, she was born, it was almost six weeks later, so it was a big wait and it was an agonising wait um, and she was born naturally around 42 weeks and initially we thought she wouldn't survive. She was breathing very poorly and by then we had also made a plan with her care team that we would continue to follow her natural cues and we wouldn't try and do any really big heroic interventions we would just see, you know, I guess let nature take its course, knowing that this baby was going to be very sick and would die at some point. Um, and it it was horrendous to go through something like that. But And the room when we gave birth wasn't that happy room that you usually expect where everyone's filled with joy. It was just filled with this sort of silence. Um, then Lily was born, she struggled to breathe and then she started to pull through and she showed this incredible energy, I guess, which she took with her in her whole life. And after the next few hours, she started to breathe on her own and by the next day, she was able to breastfeed, which was truly incredible. We'd been told that babies with this condition wouldn't be able to suck and probably would need a nasogastric tube, but she was able to breastfeed. We stayed in hospital for five days and then we were able to go home. So then began the journey of loving Lily and loving her as much as we could for her whole life, which was only 10 months long. Um, and we continued those principles that we'd started to organically put in place around helping her have the best life she could whilst working to advocate as parents so that she could do that as much as possible outside of the hospital. And we were really lucky that 
we had a wonderful support team who were able to put things in place for that to happen. And in Lily's short little life, she, and I I have to say this wasn't in a COVID world and I'm really grateful for that. It was pre-COVID. She was able to travel with us. She she travelled, had her first swim at Noosa and she went to Sydney to Bondi and she travelled down to Tasmania where our family is and she came to New Zealand and she was loved by everyone who met her and she died peacefully at home when she was 10 months old and 10 months and 15 days old. A short but long journey. Yeah, yeah, a very impactful one. And I'm sure that's what our listeners will be interested in as we move through this podcast. Thank you, Priyanka. Um, Laura, tell us about your family and Matilda's life. Thanks, Lena. Thanks for having me here. Um, I always love talking about Tilda, so it's lovely to have an opportunity to do so. So, and thanks, Priyanka, for your story. That's really interesting to listen to your journey. Um, there's some similarities. Our Tilda <coughs> was born healthy, so she was a unplanned baby, um, but very much wanted. Um, she hit all her milestones. She was ahead in her language. She was doing beautifully up until about two, two and a half. And we noticed then that her language was just starting to fall a little bit behind. Nothing to be too concerned about, but we thought, uh, we'd better get this checked out. So I scheduled a uh, developmental checkup for her third birthday. And then one week before that, she had her first tonic-clonic seizure by the side of a pool. Uh, We were living in Darwin at the time and it was the scariest thing I've ever experienced in my life. I thought she was dying in my arms. I vividly remember screaming with her, running and asking for help and the heroic lifeguard leaping over the banister to come and and help us and take us to the hospital. It was kind of put down as a one-off febrile seizure, you know, just something that happens to kids every now and again, nothing to be too worried about. So we kind of got along tentatively with life, just being very watchful of Tilda and what was happening with her. Um, A few weeks later or over the next couple of months, I started noticing her just kind of blanking out. It was like she was just gone for a second. And I think I was just hypersensitive to everything that was happening with her that I noticed. And then she started just falling. So she would just be walking along and she would just drop to the ground Um, and these were all types I learnt later these were all different types of seizures that were happening to her so after one of these drops we ended up back in hospital Uh, I was hooked up to an EEG machine and and they diagnosed her with with epilepsy Um, okay so we thought epilepsy we can deal with that get her on medication Um, more tests more drug trials Epilepsy wasn't really changing, nothing much was uh, improving. We were still living in Darwin at that point, so we flew down to Melbourne to um, meet up with a paediatric neurologist down here with some expertise in in epilepsy. And she diagnosed her with a severe type of epilepsy called Du syndrome. Okay, we can deal with that. Severe, she might have developmental delays, um, but we can cope with that. More tests, more drugs, trial up dosage, down dosage, lots of different interventions. We tried the ketogenic diet, which is an extreme diet where, um, you know, you can, you no know, carbs, which was her favourite thing in the world to eat pasta. 
nothing was working. Um, our neurologist at the time sent us off for more tests, MRIs, skin biopsies. She didn't tell us what she was testing for, which I'm glad about. Um, I was a Googler at that point, <laughs> avid Googler of symptoms, what was happening. Uh, anyway, on the 2nd of June 2011, she was four at this stage. Um, we were in the neurologist's office and she received the test results at the same time. While we were there, they got handed to her and her face went white and we knew that it wasn't good news. Um, and she told us that Matilda had what was called Batten, something called Batten disease, which we had never heard of. Um, it was an always fatal, no cure, no treatment, nothing to be done diagnosis. Um, much like leaving that room after hearing a diagnosis, we were just clutched each other. I think I went home and smashed <laughs> some figurines that we had in our house. What do you do with that? Um, but also a bit like yourself, we were of the opinion that we wanted to give Tilda the best life we possibly could. She was a very joyful child, very happy, always laughing and smiling through all her, you know, all the sieges, everything that she endured, she remained sort of cheery and happy. And we fixated on that and giving her everything that we could possibly give her and giving her the best life we could. So our life turned into a um, day-by-day living of making her happy. And it was kind of beautiful in lots of ways. Um, beautiful and horrendous, but we made it beautiful. Um, Batten disease is a very cruel disease. So she went from running and talking and eating and playing to wheelchair, peg-fed, uh, unable to talk, unable to walk. She could still laugh. She laughed right up until the end. Um, it was pneumonia for her in the end. Um, she, she had several bouts of pneumonia. This is something that happens to Batten kids. And this time we decided not to keep her in hospital. She hated hospitals. So we had her at home with the palliative care team and she died at home after two weeks uh, with, with me and Simon by her side. And we were grateful for that. And I'm sure there's many questions people have about how you got to that point as well. Okay, so Simone, tell us about family life for you and your teenage daughter, Eliza, and a very debilitating skin condition. Yeah, thanks, Lena, and thanks for having me here today with the other mums as well. It's good to be here uh, to share our story. So uh, Eliza was part of our life for almost 18 years, and um, she was our eldest daughter, born in 2000, and very much a wanted baby. And we had, you know, the, the healthy, normal pregnancy. She was five days overdue. Uh, no sign of her condition was picked up at any stage uh, with the scans. Um, you know, skin is the largest organ of the body, but with all the, the pregnancy scans that you have, it just, it's not seen. So um, she, we were expecting a perfectly healthy, happy baby um, and had a great pregnancy, normal delivery, you know, no, no hiccups at all until um, 
she was born, you know, natural delivery, but um, she presented with um, with raw areas of skin all over her body, and her right foot was totally degloved. Um, right up to the top of her knee, the backs of her hands, her mouth was affected. And we were in a private hospital and I used to work with um, a, a private paediatrician who, you know, one day said to me, oh, Simone, if you ever need a paediatrician, can I be it? And I said, well, why would I need a paediatrician? But of course you can be it. And sure enough, five hours after Eliza was born, Kathy came to the private hospital to try and diagnose what her condition was and she had no idea. Um, as it turned out, two weeks later, after a transfer, immediate transfer to the Royal Children's Hospital um, and skin biopsies, uh, Eliza was diagnosed with a very rare genetic and debilitating severe skin condition called epidermolysis bullosa and she had the recessive dystrophic strand, which meant that my husband and I were both carriers of the same recessive gene that we didn't know about. So uh, so she had this condition and it was lifelong, it was debilitating and it was extremely painful. So um, when she was first born, she screamed solidly for five hours. She kicked, she took more skin off, made more blisters. Um, basically, her EB meant that she didn't have the glue in between the layers of skin so that she was extremely fragile and with any trauma to her skin, she would just shed the, the the top, or in fact, all layers of top, the next two layers down as well, the three layers of skin, was so severe that she would end up with no skin on her. So it's likened to third degree burns and it is extremely painful. Um, some areas of skin just don't heal at all. Um, and, and that was the case with Eliza's knee and right foot. Um, and over the years, you know, just with a constant breakdown of skin, she ended up with so much scar tissue that it was so tight that she had uh, con uh, strictures and contracted areas. And, and so over time, she lost her mobility. She was unable to eat. She was peg fed. Um, she had high medical intervention needs. She was in, in a wheelchair. Um, and, you know, she struggled with taking lids off pens and toileting herself, um, obviously walking, as I said. Even her speech was affected by her tongue, wasn't able to move in certain ways. Her mouth was quite tight to move as well. So our, uh, our whole world went from expecting this beautiful, healthy baby to just being totally turned upside down. Then what it meant for us is that, you know, how do you, how do you care for a child that you can't put inside a bubble? Um, you need to let her live in a normal way as much as possible and explore and learn and develop just like other children. And I think probably the hardest part was not to see your child develop um, the way a normal child would, but also be in so much pain. So... Um, we had the pain team involved at a, at, from birth, basically, but it just never seemed to be enough. And so eventually palliative care became involved, but it wasn't until she was about 11 that, she, that they came on board to support her needs. We were very limited with living life and um, 
and at times we were prisoners in our own home. So it impacted on the whole family. Um, we had a younger daughter five years later and were fortunate enough to have genetic testing and she was fortunate that she didn't inherit uh, any of the genes. So we had the two girls, but with Eliza's condition, it just meant that we were very limited with what we could do uh, socially, especially during the summer, because she was wrapped up in bandages. It was very hot for her and uncomfortable. She couldn't go out in the heat. Um, we were very governed by places that we could go, air conditioning, no air conditioning. And so it meant that it pretty much split the family um, where our family is all still together and, you know, my daughter and my husband are, are still living in the same in the same house and we're still very much a family. But, you know, we tried to offer our other daughter a normal life and so, you know, my husband was off doing things with her while I was caring for Eliza. And with this condition, the severer type of EB, you just never know the life expectancy. We knew that it was going to be life-limiting, but... The primary causes of death with recessive dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa is usually either skin cancer or infection. So we were expecting that that would be the case and it's usually in the late, later years of the mid-20s. But in Eliza's case, she had uh, renal kidney involvement and uh, her first bout of kidney impairment was when she was 11 and we were told then to prepare ourselves for her to pass away. Um, but she got through that um, after 18 months of intensive kidney um, plasmapheresis treatment. And then she was okay. She was in remission. And then when she was 17, she became unwell again. And we had four four terrible months of her being in hospital. And again, it was her kidneys and she ended up passing away two weeks before Christmas to the day. And um, she was at home and it was six weeks before her 18th birthday. So she was surrounded by us and two of her favourite doctors from the Royal Children's Hospital. And um, she went peacefully, but her whole life was a big struggle. An incredibly tormented journey for her in so many ways. Very much so, yeah. yeah. And these are the things that people will want to know about, yeah. how painful that was, but there are some lessons that you'll, you can pass on, some information that we will get to um, as we go through. Thank you all for passing on those stories. Okay. Children with life-limiting conditions face end-of-life care and death in many different, varied and individual ways. For many children, it can be difficult at times to accurately predict when the end of life is approaching. Some families may need the company of health professionals, others will want to be on their own with their child, and some will want to have extended family or close friends with them. Some families and children choose to be at home, Others prefer to be in hospital or in hospice care. Families are encouraged to choose the place of death that best suits their child's needs and provided with as much or as little support as required. Families need to be supported with the right information at the right time and be informed of options and care needs at every stage as end-of-life approaches, including asking any questions that might be on their mind. Most families wish for their child to be comfortable and at peace. 
surrounded by those they love. Families may need guidance on how to prepare themselves and their child. This episode will focus on how families prepare for the devastation of the loss of their child and discuss the things they wish they'd known so that other families can learn from their experiences. Simone, I'll stay with you because you obviously have some medical training as well. So you had an advantage in understanding so much of what was required on a daily basis. Um, And you said palliative care came in late. Was that what was the best thing to happen in that time, planning how to manage it, or you'd already been on a long journey? Uh, Look, Lena, we had already been on a long journey and um, Eliza was in a lot of pain. But, you know, you you go through the system and you think you're in good hands and you're in the hands of the expert. Um, And so, you know, we were under management of the pain team. Um, But it just wasn't quite enough. And you know your own child. You don't have to have... Um, exposure to a medical background or experience in the past, you just know that it's not enough for her. And, you know, when you're living through days that your child's in a lot of pain, you just, it's a, it's a long day, let alone a long life of 17 years. So um, in the end, we were, when Eliza became sicker with her kidney involvement when she was 11, that's when we were transferred across to palliative care. And that's when things start. It was a huge game changer for us. Um, things started to change. She was in. Um, she was a lot more comfortable then. Um, but with this type of condition, it was it was so intense um, and progressive with her with her skin. You know, I was up and down every day, and and one day she might have pretty good looking skin, and and then the next day it all falls apart, and so she's so sore all over again. So, you know, it was it was very up and down, and you really had to be on the ball, and that's where the Pal Care team became involved because they were they were on the ball, um, and they were very quick to try other avenues and other pathways and introduce new medications. So, whilst I had the skill to look after her and the background knowledge, I didn't have the equipment and um, all the tools, but they gave me um, access to that and they were so supportive. And um, and over time we eventually got there and things did settle down until they changed again. You know, it was an ever-moving um, target. It was just always hard to, to pinpoint. Eliza wasn't just on one type of pain relief. She was on many and extremely, you know, highly addictive pain relief she needed to keep her comfortable so um it was a moving target but they were very good to try and keep her comfortable as much as they could being an older child and when she was able to speak and talk what was her input about her treatment uh she had a lot of input eliza eb affected her physically but certainly not you know, mentally, academically, she was very switched on. She was very sharp. And so towards the end of her life, this was a real, um, not an issue, but it was a real, not even dilemma, but it was something there that needed to be considered. And the palliative care team, and rightly so, um, they had to take on board her her wishes um, and she was adamant over certain pain relief that she did not want to take, and especially, um, 
you know, methadone, um, I must say that was one of the medications that we used towards the end of the last couple of months of her life. But it, just because it was called methadone and the stigma and everything that becomes attached with that out in society, she did not want to have a bar of it. Um, but eventually she did take it. But, you know, as a family, we had to hide it away. We had to, we, we had a lot of carers in our life looking, helping us to look after Eliza. They used to come to hospital as well. Drawing up the medication, that was just one thing that I always had to do anyway. But even if the bottle was just sitting there on the table, she did not like people seeing the type of medication that she was on. Um, so she she had very much a say um, and she had a will to live. So whilst the palliative care team in the last couple of weeks wanted to see her a little bit more comfortable, it meant that she would be a little bit more sleepy and she did not want to be asleep or be a little bit more relaxed. So she fought to the very end um, and the palliative care team were very um, conscious that, you know, Eliza's wishes were taken into consideration as well. And in fact, she, even though she was still a child, she was six weeks off turning 18, she actually had more say over situations than what Wayne, my husband and I did. But it was difficult at the time because as a parent, you just don't want to see your child suffer or hang on any more than they need to, but she did it her way. And her way was very much respected within the team at the hospital as well as with us. And it's very different. So for Priyanka and Laura, where you've got younger children, Priyanka, um, how did palliative care become part of your journey? Yeah, so it is different, but there's so many things that both Simone and Laura have said that I feel I can relate to and picking up on different threads. I mean, I think with the medication, there's a stigma attached. And even though it wasn't Lily who had that stigma for some of her medication, you know, it was very strong meds, similar to what you're describing and things like morphine, that as a parent, you can't talk to other parents about. You can't go to the playground and talk about your child's epilepsy meds because it's terrifying for other people. You know, it's it's a conversation killer and a conversation stopper. And there is this secret club of parents who have to give their children methadone and morphine and epilepsy meds that might cause peripheral blindness and you can't really share it with anyone. You know, there's no common place to go to, so it just kind of really can resonate with what's been shared already. Um, our journey with palliative care did start much earlier on and I think that having that horrendous first it was, you know, first few weeks where we got the diagnosis before Lily was born helped us to prepare our thoughts a little bit and plan around that. And I can't remember if we met the palliative care team. It was after Lily was born. They came to our house for a home visit. We spoke about how many parents are involved in palliative care for years. It doesn't mean a death sentence. And I think that's something that is really important to pick up on because when you hear the word palliative, you think everybody's given up. It's not that. It, it can help you to reshape your goals, I think, for your child. So your goal might not be about finding a cure anymore, although you'll never stop hoping and looking and maybe raising money for one, but you might be able to reshape your goals to be how can we, um, for Lily it was, how can she be as comfortable as possible and how can we, what therapies can we do that might make her life better while she's here? So 
our journey with palliative care did start early and they were with us to the end as a support team. Uh, and I think picking up on something else that Simone said around um, you are your child's best advocate at the end of the day and you will know, like there's nothing like a mummy and a daddy instinct, you will know if something is wrong or if something doesn't feel right and sometimes that might mean that you have to speak up and speak up against what a doctor is recommending. It doesn't mean that you have to say, no, we're going to withdraw care or we're not going to do it that way, but you can push for an alternative and that's completely within your rights. I think often with Lily, because uh, it wasn't a normal situation where we were going to be able to you know, treat her epilepsy. Lily suffered from a lot of epilepsy as well. And then, it, you know, it wasn't just epilepsy and we had that same feeling around it initially. Oh, epilepsy. There was a child when I was at school who had a seizure once a year and he lived a good life. But no, Lily's epilepsy is what she actually had her last seizure and then she died from, you know, that was the catalyst at the end. So epilepsy can kill um, and it's relentless. So... At times, we would speak up and say, look, this isn't working for us. Um, we found the palliative care team was really great to support us in looking for different options or weighing up the considerations of the side effect of a particular epilepsy medication versus how that would impact her quality of life at that time. So we had that support where something wasn't quite right. I, you know, I felt really passionate about medication that might take some of her very limited abilities away, even if it were to leave some epilepsy, didn't quite seem right if it was going to potentially cause her to go blind. You know, I didn't want a baby who couldn't do all of these things and could see us and could make eye contact, but then to be told, maybe take this medication, oh, it might cause some blindness, but it might cure them. The epilepsy wasn't right for Lily necessarily. So it was about weighing that up uh, and getting people to kind of look at it from that point of view and I think that's something that was much more understood in the palliative care setting than in the mainstream hospital where you can get swept I guess into what's done for a normal child like we would do these things because the outcome for a normal child will be that that child will get back out of the hospital environment and survive and what you're weighing up in a scenario where your child has a life-limiting condition isn't the same and yeah, that's kind of where I felt the support from palliative care was great. Laura, how did you come into the palliative care support? Um, so we were under a, a different um, hospital's neurologist, um, but we were coming to the children's when she was, you know, becoming unwell and having seizures and we became involved through various um, trips in here. And I guess because the diagnosis was so sort of definitive, it was there was no getting around that it was life-limiting, um, they became involved pretty soon after we got the diagnosis. Um, and initially, I think, I, you know, I had always thought palliative meant sort of the end and it was the... But actually, for us, it was, you know, they were with us for probably with, for three years um, and were able to help us reframe, exactly as you're sort of saying, her life around, you know, what we can get out of... The best we can get out instead of... Um, focusing on, you know, a cure, we could we could reframe it and focus on, you know, let's make this the best we can possibly make it. They helped us get things like equipment that we were unable, because this was all before the NDIS um, and before other things like that. So we had, 
difficulty getting access to equipment. Um, they got her a wheelchair. They got her some seating, specialised seating. Uh, and then they were, you know, hugely involved in her actual end-of-life care. Um, so they were with us for a long time. I guess one of the questions to all of you is, what did you need to know and it, and you found hard to find about your child dying? What, what were those things that worried you at, late at night? What were those things? <laughs> How it would happen? How it would happen. Yeah. How and when? Yeah. I think that was I knew as soon as we got the diagnosis it felt like those were the two questions. When and and how. Um and we never you know, that was an unknown entity. Um, and did you get answers as you got closer to this? Um eventually, although even the two weeks where she had pneumonia, we were still not sure that this was it. It was still not very clear, you know, because other kids have had pneumonia and, and rallied and, and gotten better. We were, we were given sort of hints that this was probably a bit more serious than previous episodes of, of chest infection. How it would happen would keep me awake at night and I have conversations with so many other families who are going through these things as well through social media and I think the single biggest question I hear from parents is what how will I know when my child's going to die and particularly when it's not really explained it's like your child for us Lily had an intellectual disability her brain hasn't formed properly she will have seizures she won't be able to do all of these things but which of those things will cause her to die we don't really know uh, with modern interventions, there's lots of things we can do. But what will cause her to die? Well, it might be pneumonia or it could be an infection or it just could be something. We don't really know. And it was exhausting. I would go online and look for other families' experiences and try and understand how their child had died. So now when I have families asking me through social media, I try as much as I can to explain how Lily died and I... I think there's a lot of guilt that parents feel for wanting to know how their child will die and often it, f it, it can feel like you can't ask your care team because then they might think that you're fixating on the death or that you want them to, to die or, you know, there's this guilt associated with asking that. And I, I want to say for anyone listening that it is so normal and you can ask those questions. I would 100% agree. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Simone? Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, for us, it wasn't a matter of um, how is it going to happen. We had so many bouts that this could be it and, you know, this could be a time that you're going to lose her, you need to prepare yourself for it. And the amount of times that we did that and then she'd come good again. And that in itself is exhausting, like you said. It's just... And you almost get to the point where you just think, I don't know how much longer I can go on like this. Because I said earlier, you know, with her condition, it wasn't just the, the mental game, mentally exhausting. It was physically exhausting too. She was 32 kilos. She couldn't, um, we, she couldn't walk. We had to lift her. It was just exhausting. 
And I think for me, the hardest thing with palliative care is that um, they were very, very good at talking about uh, talking with us through, you know, medications and and the process of passing away. I, I struggle to actually say dying. I, I just still find it very a harsh word. So, so we spoke a lot about passing away, but. But it was when. When is this going to happen? How much longer do I have to be a robot for to go on um, to get her through life? And how much longer does her sibling have to, you know, be cared for by grandparents or be dropped off to school by somebody else? And how many more nights do I have to spend in hospital until this is all over? It's just you're like a robot. You lose yourself to this illness. And, um, and yeah, it, it's more about... I don't know if I can speak to anybody in the team about this. You know, not not that you want it to hurry up and just finish, but you know the end. You know it's going to happen one day and some days you just wanted it to end. And to be able to talk about that was really hard because I didn't want them to think this mother's depressed, this mother is over-anxious, this mother is just wanting it to happen. Mm. You it just, wasn't about that, yeah. It wasn't about yeah. that at all. Yeah. It's it's just, I don't know, how much longer can I do this? Mm. It was, we had almost 18 years mm. of high trauma and there's a lot of post-traumatic stress even still. Three, you know, three years on, I think I'll always have it, just seeing what she went through. And you said we got ready for it, we prepared for it many times. What what does that mean to you when you say we, we got ready for it? Yeah. Were you planning right to the end? Did you – what does that mean? Well, for, for me, um, you know, I was Eliza's primary carer and so we were joined at the hip. I, I knew her inside out and upside down and even though the doctors are the medical experts and, yes, I had some background um, preparation for that with previous work that I did, but, um, you know, you know your own child and um, – and so for me especially, I, I started thinking about well, what does the end look like? How do I want it to be for her, for us as a family, for her sister? Um, and, you know, I started preparing funerals, um, readings, songs, the way it would look, you know, my my her eulogy what I would say whether I'd speak or not what you know the finest of little details and I used to many times sit here in hospital lay in bed at night in hospital you don't sleep so you just lie awake at night and I, I scroll through songs and readings and and then when she finally did pass I had it all there and I remember the palliative care team one of the specialists especially was um completely blown away that it was all there it was all prepared they had no idea that I was having these thoughts for a long time my husband had no idea either um, my family and then it all just it was here it was pretty easy to organize because I'd had it all thought out so and that I think was a bit of a regret from palliative care's perspective that um, that they hadn't picked up on that or, or that the, there was no opening to talk about that because I, I would have loved to but I felt that it would have been frowned upon because what mother wishes their mm. child to pass? And to make those preparations mm. over and over mm. and over again yeah. as you did. Yeah. yeah, and it was traumatic and, and some of the times you never wish your child to pass but you wish your child pain would end mm. and so... 
you know, some of the times when she'd pull through, you're still traumatised mm. by the two weeks, the month that you've just spent in hospital, a week or so later, you still get it, you're exhausted, you're still recovering and she's fine. Mm. She's back at school, she's learning, she's laughing, she's having fun. She's still in daily pain but she pushed, mm. you know, pushed she's very through. good at being resilient against that. And you're left sitting there thinking, what the hell was that, that all about? Mm. You know, here we go again. How much longer is this going to go on for? Mm. It's it's horrible to say. And as, yeah. as you say, you, but, there's not many other people that you can actually no. talk to about that. Yeah. It's a very special little tight community yeah. and only so many people get it. Not many people get it unless you go through it. Mm. And in a short time, what what would, what would did you want to know about the dying, what you would do, mm. what was your plan, what were you thinking? The challenge for us was we weren't given a time frame, but we were led to believe it would be at least two years and it was only 10 months and 15 days. So I didn't think Lily was going to die when she died, even though she was so sick and we'd been up all night for hours and hours and I hadn't slept. And I look back on it now and it was so clear that she was dying. But at the time, I kept thinking she would rally and she would turn a corner and she had before, you know, it had started from birth when we thought she wouldn't breathe and then she would breathe and then she could breastfeed and then seizures started. Then she responded initially to seizure medication. Then she started to get sicker again. So... It was a complete, uh, it was like being like, like someone was playing with our brains, like we were being gaslighted. It was some sort of psychotic episode that we were in where we would prepare ourselves for her to die, then she would pull through. So after a while, I sort of couldn't even think about it because I thought if I was thinking about it, I was tempting fate that she would or she wouldn't. And there was guilt associated with her wa- wanting her to die because I didn't want her to be in pain. I didn't want her to suffer anymore. I didn't want her to have a life where she couldn't talk, where she couldn't do anything. I wanted her life to be wonderful. And when the good moments were there, when she was smiling and when she was able to communicate and do so many of the things that the specialists told us she would never do, then we had that peace and that the days were quiet and peaceful and beautiful and we were able to live in a bubble to a certain degree and make the most of all of those happy moments. But in the back of my mind and 3am I would be Googling to find out what did it mean that seizure was longer than the other one or she's had 40 seizures today and we've changed a medication. What Does that mean she's dying? Um but then doctors would say, you don't die from a seizure as such. So, no, she's not going to die from the seizures. Well, what is she going to die from? She doesn't appear to have a cold. She doesn't appear to have pneumonia. So wanting to know what the signs were and when was just so hard. And I don't think we really ever got those answers until five days before she died when we went to see her paediatrician and We were actually still thinking of going to see some family and he said, I don't think you should. And every other time he'd been really supportive of us hopping on a plane and taking her somewhere. Uh, And he said, I think you should get them to come to you because this, you know, she might not survive the flight and you don't want her to die on a flight. Suddenly we were like, oh, okay, so we're we're here in this space. You've never said it like that to us. 
Um, so we didn't and my brother and his wife and kids came down and we had an incredible weekend where I think Lily gave her everything and we looked back on the photos and she was, it was like she'd rallied again. She'd completely turned a corner. She was bright and interactive with the kids and the morning that they left, she went downhill and five days later she died, which was a complete shock at the time. I didn't see the signs there. Even though, I say that, even though I didn't sleep for those five days because I stayed awake and nursed her through the night, but that was our norm. It was our, it was, as you said, it was our relentless norm was to kind of have these nights and my husband and I would do night shift or day shift and take over at different times and we were so used to doing that that it does become your norm and you get so used to seeing your child with limited levels of oxygen or really bad colour that it was normal. I look back on those photos of her now and compared to my healthy son and I can just see how abnormal that was and... Yeah, the signs are probably there in retrospect, but not I, they weren't there at the time because that was what we were living with every single day. Laura, what, what did you want to know about those final moments leading up to her dying? Um, I guess we'd had so much loss over the, over the seven years that we had Tilda. It was this incremental loss. Time and time she would lose a bit of, you know, a bit of who she was, a bit of her abilities, a bit of her, you know, every time she would get sick, she would rally but perhaps not get to, you know, quite to where she was. Um, and, you know, like yourselves, we, we were thinking when is this going to happen and how is this going to happen and really wanting to know the answer to that. And like yourself, I would... The Batten disease community is also, it's a very rare genetic condition. It's very small. There are only 30 kids in Australia who have Batten disease. So we were all connected and I would, uh, and even worldwide, I would watch them and watch videos of them. Um, and when a child would, would pass away, I was obsessed about where were they? Where were they at in their journey? Is Tilda like that? Where is she at in comparison? Exactly like you. She's having lots of seizures. She's looking a bit similar. Is this where she's at? And never really knowing um, when it was going to happen. And it, a bit like you as well, this time when she got pneumonia, it started off feeling similar to other times where she had pneumonia or a chest infection. It felt a little different though. I, I do remember... Um, sort of asking people to think, you know, to have her in their thoughts, which I hadn't really done before. It was kind of a, an odd thing for me to, to sort of request people to be thinking of her because she, she had pneumonia and, you know, we were keeping her at home and just watching and waiting. Um, and then this two weeks where she was palliative, end of life, was this bubble of time actually where um, we had the palliative care team coming in we had access to palliative care nurses over the phone. We had friends and family coming in. Um, there was lots of stories and food and music and laughter. And it was this real surreal alternate reality of time. And we did, I mean, I did know, um, I was desperate to know what it would actually, you know, we're talking about the nitty gritty. I wanted to know what it would look like. What, how would I know when she was, what were the signs? You know, what, what would she look like? 
What was what should I be on the watch for? And I do feel like even though the palliative care team are so good at this space, those really nitty-gritty questions about her breathing and what would happen after she died, what would happen to her body, what she would look like, all those questions I don't think were talked about. We were we were focused really on keeping her comfortable, obviously. Um, she had a subcut intravenous morphine thing, I don't even know what it was called, where she was sort of continually getting morphine. Um, and we had access to that and access to the palliative care nurse. And I remember calling her at one o'clock in the morning because Tilda had gone not a great colour. And we were, is this it? Is this it? And we upped her dose a bit and she settled and her breathing settled. But I vividly remember lying. So she was in her room and we had a bed set up. We would take turns sleeping in the room with her. And I would lie in bed and listen to her breathing. And sometimes it would stop. And I would wait for the next one. And then it would come. And in my mind, I'm going, don't give up, don't give up. Or let her go, let her go. Because she was, she was so laboured. It was so hard for her to breathe. In that moment, and then she didn't take an next breath. I look back on that time as this, yeah, this real, I can't even explain what it was like, um, that moment of her death. But some of the things that I think about now, seven years, and I'm seven years down the line, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a time away that I can have that time and space to look back. I wish I had, I wish I had washed her body. I wish I had connected to her body a bit more. I felt a bit afraid of her body after she died. I wish someone had talked to me a bit more about that, about what that would look like, what that would feel like. And I'm going to say some things that are a bit nitty-gritty and I hope that's okay, but we kept it at home. I had already chosen a bit like you. I'd already planned her funeral too. Uh, I had picked the songs that I wanted. Um, I had thought about what I was going to say. I Googled how to plan a child's funeral. <laughs> um, there were some wonderful websites that I got um, doing that. Um, so we had picked a funeral home and I remember she, and the palliative care team had told us, you don't have to do anything after she dies. You know, you don't have to rush to do anything. When you're ready, you can call the, the funeral home and, and go from there. And the funeral home we had chosen were lovely and fabulous and I will forever be grateful to them. Um, they told us, you don't, we don't have to come and get her now. She can stay in your home overnight. And I didn't know that that was possible. And I didn't know that, and my husband didn't tell me this because he was on the phone to them. I didn't know that you had to put ice packs in the bed with her to keep her cool. I didn't know that. All that sort of nitty gritty detail that I hadn't allowed myself to go there. And I don't know whether I would have been receptive to hear it at the time. Maybe not. It's only now that I can look back and think about that, that moment of how I wish it could have been or what I would have done differently. We had, a, we had a really positive experience, but there are definitely some things that I wish that I had known. And I guess that's part of why I'm doing this today is to try and help anyone. The nitty gritty. That's what we're talking about. Just before we finish up, anything that you would like to have known in that last part, thinking about what Laura has said? 
Um, I, I think for me it was more about um, it, just those discussions of, you know, just the trauma of, of losing a child and, you know, how much longer is it going to go on for? And I, I think one of the most helpful things for me is that one of the specialists one day um, said to me, this is not going to go on forever. It won't last forever. And it was not a timeline, but it was just an acknowledgement that, you know, this trauma, it is it is going to finish So um, at some stage. And it just gives you that hope to hold on, to keep doing your best. Um, but I, I think it's probably just having that opening to discuss a little bit more about... Um, you know, just the impact on the on the whole family unit of losing a child. It's just, it's so traumatic. It's massive impact. Mm. I'll finish with you, Priyanka. Any any of those things resonate with you in terms of yes. what you didn't know right at the end, what, you were, what was unexpected and you would like to have known? So that conversation we had with Lily's paediatrician a couple of days before she died... I said to him that I have this, I keep thinking in my mind when she dies, it's going to be, there's going to be, you know, soft lighting and music and candles and we will know so we'll be able to do that. And that the night before we we met with him had been a particularly traumatic night where she'd almost died and none of that was there. It was the middle of the night, it was dark, we were doing our shifts. And he said to me, it's probably not going to be like that. And he talked through what might happen when she stopped breathing and you know it's the nitty-gritty so he talked through that her color might change and that she might turn blue and that it could take a long time and it could be very disturbing for us and it started to change my mindset at that point and I'm forever grateful that we had that conversation after Lily died, we she was very small, so we were lucky to be able to use what's called a cuddle cot, and it's actually a cold cot. And there was one at Very Special Kids Hospice, which is a paediatric palliative care hospice in Victoria. Um, so Lily stayed with us overnight, and we did bathe her, and she stayed in our room. It sounds bizarre to anybody that you would keep your baby. She was always in our room so after she died she put it back in her cot and we had that last night together. We held her on our bed and then we went to very special kids and she was in the cuddle cot there and I'm forever grateful that we were able to do that so she didn't have to go to a funeral home and we were able to spend the next five days until she died. I'm sorry, she, until her funeral um, visiting her and our family could come and say their final goodbyes to her and we took her toys there and her music there and she was in this cuddle cot and it sounds horrendous but actually gave us the gift of some extra time and I guess I would encourage anyone to explore those options. Um, one thing that was missed was photos. We didn't think she was going to die when she would so we had never done professional photos. We've hardly got a photo of all three of us, like a good one, apart from, you know, those taken in the hospital. Got millions of photos of Lily, but most, of you know, not very good ones of us. And all the videos we have predominantly are of seizures because you film seizures to show doctors. So I wish I'd taken more videos of happy moments 
professional videos and professional photos and I'm slightly obsessed with professional family photos now, I think, as a residual trauma from not having enough. Um, And we somehow missed, I think palliative care does support that a lot, but somehow we missed that. And I think because our wishes were so strong to have Lily at home and we seemed like we were in such control of things that sometimes those things can slip. And I didn't know you could get plaster casts of hands, so you can get moulds made of hands and feet, which are amazing. And I wish that I had that because then I could hold Lily's hand now and I can't. We were lucky enough to get her thumbprints and fingerprints, so that was organised by the palliative care team and I think that's something to really to, to ask for as well. And just to think about those things before your child dies, as awful as that sounds. One other thing that was quite empowering um, just before Eliza passed away is that her breathing changed and she became a little bit um, stressed and um, she needed water and she said, I want to go to hospital, I can't breathe. And we've reassured her the whole time that we're at home now, but if at any stage you want to go to hospital, you need to let us know. And it was in between her breathlessness, she could barely talk, but she managed to get that out that she wanted to go to hospital because she was struggling to breathe. And and again, I think for us, because her life was so traumatic with constant pain of her skin, you know, now not being able to breathe and me being an asthmatic, I know what that's like. And um, and so I, I rang palliative care straight away. And um, I've got to say, they were fantastic. They were straight on the phone. I, I think the phone only rang twice and they picked it up and they were straight onto it. And one of the consultants had said to me, Simone, we can organise, if you want her to come to hospital, that's fine. We can organise that and we can do it very quickly. But you have the tools there to do it. And they were amazing at empowering me. She had a subcut in her leg. She had an intravenous line as well. She had her peg as well. I had all the tools. They talked me through, pick up this medication. And I put that through and flushed it through her line. And she just settled right down. She was so comfortable. And... In, you know, I, I nursed her all through her life with her wound care, but to be able to nurse her to the end with her medication needs as well um, was a huge privilege. And I'm so glad that they gave me that opportunity. So sometimes as parents, you don't think that, oh, no, they won't do that. They won't support that. Ask. It doesn't hurt to ask. Palliative care, like I said from the beginning, they were a massive game changer for us. And they made almost anything possible. They supported us right through it. And in the end, she passed in home. She was comfortable. It wasn't until the next morning. But, you know, it was it was much better. It, because prior to me calling them, it was very stressful and traumatic. Her sibling was in tears because she'd left for school in the morning and she had deteriorated so much just in the five hours that she was at school you know, everything just calmed down and we had the, the, the tools at home to, to make that happen and it was just a soft voice on the other end of the phone telling us how to do it. Mm. So just ask um, and they'll be able to sort it out for you. Mm. I, I think the other thing also is that often mums as primary carers mm. are on a completely different page than even their mm. husbands. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I found mm. that, I just touched on it a minute ago, but the day Eliza passed away on a Tuesday morning, early in the morning, we were all there. But the day prior, she deteriorated so much from the morning to when they came home from school and work that Wayne, my husband, he was like, what, what's happening? And I said to him, 
get with the program. <laughs> He'd been at work all day, yeah. and you know, so it wasn't his fault because mm. you know we needed a roof out of our head, over our head, and and dads have to continue to pay the bills, and they've got to work to do that. But um, you know, I was with her all the time, and I could see what was happening. And you know, quite often, mums and dads husbands and wives are not on the same page and and that is a big mm. it's part of the reason why I was planning the funeral all mm. on my own mm. because not only did I think the palliative care team and other teams would judge you but also you know I thought that my I mean I've had times that my husband said to me you just want it all over mm. you know you mm. just and I, and I'm not going to give up on her mm. but but quite often they're not the ones doing the hard mm. slog either mm. so um it's you Quite often you do feel very much on your own, mm. um, but you're not. There's other mums out mm. there that know exactly how you feel. Yeah. Keep asking questions, mm. you know, ask mm. them, you know, and unless you have a, a plan, you know, is there any advice you'd give uh, to other families out there about those, the end of life decisions think, and thoughts? I think what Simone said about asking mm-hmm. is really important because we were empowered to manage a lot of Lily's medication and process that at home and where we had questions we would call and they would say to us it's okay to give her a little bit more Mm. you can give her a little bit more morphine or give her some more clonazepam uh, at this stage it's about her comfort care so if you think she needs it then you can give it to her and I you know, many families don't realise that they can have that medication at home. So mm. we had a conversation about what can we have at home in order to prepare for this so that we know it's already there when we need to use it and we're not racing over to the hospital to get it. And so we essentially had a kit and we had two different kits, you know, one that was actively in use and then one was that was for the very end. Uh, and everything was sort of there. The other kit we didn't actually end up using, which had stronger medications in it because she actually passed away before she needed that. But knowing that we had those things there and it meant that if the palliative care nurse came in, she could just go to our cupboard and access the things that she needed that we weren't already giving Lily gave us huge peace of mind. So getting that stuff planned and having the conversations and not being afraid if you think your child's in pain to say we need something stronger Uh, and it comes back to that stigma sometimes as well around drugs like morphine and methadone or uh, really strong seizure meds that it's okay to ask those questions and the stigma isn't there it's about what what is in the best interest of my child and that won't always be the same as what's in the best interest for me as a person, as a mother. What's in the best interest for me will be for Lily to live forever so that I can have her as mine forever. What's in the best interest of Lily is to be comfortable and peaceful and to live a peaceful life until she dies free from pain. And also try not to have any regrets. Mm. You know, you only get one go at this and mm. sometimes it happens quicker than yes. you realise. And so I remember for us, um, Eliza was in year 10 and her favourite teacher asked to come over and um, because she passed away, like I said, two weeks before Christmas, but she didn't actually finish her year 10 because she was sick for four months, sicker for four months or in palliative care for four months before she passed. So um, so she came over and presented her with a year 10 certificate, not final completion certificate, but did they'd mock something up for her to feel like she'd achieved something. And she was reading it through her through the stories from all her friends and the certificate of achievement. Um, 
which was really lovely for Eliza and very important for closure for her. But the day before she passed, her principal rang and said, I'd really like to come and see her with her favourite teacher again. Um, could Could I do that? And I really wanted him to come for him. But I thought to myself, things are moving really quickly and I don't know whether she's going to be here or whether, you know, she's clearly going to deteriorate more by tomorrow morning. And I just, I wanted to have those moments with her as a family and my, you know, the night before I said to my husband, tomorrow is the day that you need to not go to work. I'll let you know when you, when you need not to go and tomorrow's the day you need to be home. Ali had the, the curriculum day off school that was perfect and I didn't want anybody else there. And I said to the principal, I'm really sorry, but things are moving quickly and we just need to be here as a family. And as it turned out, the morning that he was going to be here was the morning that she passed away. And it was perfect. Wayne was home from work. Ali was home from school. We were all there. The doctors, two doctors had made it just in time and one of the nurses. And we were all sitting around her on her bed. And her favourite doctor was talking to her and she sort of started to make some sounds and noises. She knew that we were all there and then she took her final breath. And I do not regret. I'm a bit of a yes person and that was the Mm. one time I said no Mm. and I'm so glad I did because I would have regretted it. So have no regrets. Put yourself first Mm. and, you know, just think about tomorrow might be the last day or the next few hours might be the last few hours. Do it how you wanted to Mm. do it because you've got to live with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Trust your instincts, I think, yeah. is that. Absolutely. Is that sort of mummy instinct comes out in you and at times you know. But I also think that you'll always have some feeling of regret sometimes because you feel like you should have done things differently mm. when you look back with the benefit of hindsight. So Absolutely. in not having any regrets, it's about understanding that you're making the best decisions you can with the, the information moment. you've got. Yeah. And that's your job. If you can look back and go, oh, look, in the future, maybe now that I know this, I would have done this differently. But at the time, mm. I didn't know Lily was dying, so I did the best I could right. with the information I had. Then you'll have no mm. regrets. I will always regret that I didn't let Lily have ice cream or chocolate. <laughs> I know she was a 10-month-old baby and it's not normal <laughs> to let 10-month-old babies have that. But I always feel like I was a bit of a mean mum for always <laughs> insisting on like the organic-y, vegetable-y purees, the poor child. You know, so there'll always be something yeah. like that. But, at the, you know, you're doing the best you can with the with information with it, you've yeah, got absolutely. at the time and that's all you can do and trust your instinct. Yeah, And ask the questions. Mm. Thank you so much for being so brave and so forthcoming and so honest about what you've been through. Um, I know that this will help so many people. You've been listening to the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying. The Royal Children's Hospital Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and all its health professionals would like to thank those parents who've generously taken part in this series. You can search all the episodes online at rch.org.au forward slash podcasts. I'm Lena Keneva. Thanks for listening. <laughs>